I am just so thrilled to have <laughs> Dr. Yolanda Seely Ruiz with us, one of my favorite people. Oh, thank, and, and I want to thank you so much. You know, my daughter Chandler, do you remember Chandler? I know. How is she doing? Of course I remember she Chandler. Is great. And she said, you know, I'm ordering all of her t-shirts. I quote her all the time. <laughs> She's such a fan. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell her that I am blessed to know that and to think, and I miss her. Like yeah. I remember the work that we were doing together and thank you for doing this work. It's so yeah. needed you know, my heart Mm -hmm. in this work. And thank you. Just thank you. Well, thank you. I'm such a fan and it's such a pleasure and an honor to be here today. So I want to jump right in and I want to just get started. I met you when we started the Defining Us Project and somebody recommended that I have a conversation with you. And we met in Midtown, New York, or actually down in Soho, I think. I remember. And um, I remember that first day and you coming into the office and me thinking, wow, this woman has committed her life to these issues. It's so personal for you. It's also so part of your whole being and part of your profession. And so just to kind of warm us up, I want you to talk a little bit about how you got started and the purposefulness of this work for you and why it is so important to you. Well, thank you for asking me how I got started in this work. It has to go all the way back to when I was in probably middle school, right? Now, of course, (laughs) I didn't uh, have the language at that time. Since I've gotten older, I've experienced a bit. I realized in middle school how Black boys and Latino boys were treated differently than Black girls and Latino girls. And so I grew up in the South Bronx, predominantly Black and Latinos, or all Black and Latinos in my neighborhood are teachers, uh, predominantly white. And the girls were seen as gifted and talented. And so I was chosen as one of those gifted and talented girls and selected to go to a FEP, Fieldston Enrichment Program. It was a program that was set aside on Saturdays. And I remember taking the bus up to Henry Hudson Parkway and getting off at this incredible campus. I'd never seen anything like it. It was the Fieldston School. And so as I think about my trajectory going through these special programs, it was heavily girls. I think all of the girls from my middle school, there were four of us, all girls, even in the program of kids coming from across the city was mostly girls. And I didn't start piecing things together, Stacey, until I started working for the NYU Metro Center for Urban Education specifically around disproportionality. And that's when I discovered this disproportionate placement of Black and Latino boys in special education, also being left out of a lot of AP courses. So Black and Latina girls, for the most part, were being seen as gifted, sent to special programs, given different opportunities, at least in my neighborhood, and the boys were seen as special ed. And I remember growing up with these boys who could do calculations in their mind and hold lists from the grocery store from their moms. You know, the mom would say, go to the store and get me X, Y, and Z. And they could remember all that, do calculations. And as I'm reflecting back, I'm thinking, how were they, what what was special ed? The way that special ed is being uh, talked about. So it has to go all the way back to growing up, then deliberately doing this work, seeing this work at the Metro Center, 
how children were being pushed in special education and suspended, and it all led back to race. And that lit a fire in me. And that was uh, Metro Center, let me say maybe 20 years ago. I was the first postdoc. So Yolanda, that's so interesting to me because I wonder if I'm making way too big of a leap. Mm. But, you know, one of the things we often hear about the Black community is the women are there, they're holding it together, they're strong, where are the men? Um, And what's interesting to me is that people never ask the next question, which is why, what happened historically? Thank you. Why do we find ourselves in this place? Thank you. And that story that you just told is one strand of that, Mm -hmm. is it not? Absolutely. It starts early. And I thank you so much. This is why for the racial literacy development model that I've been working through, that historical literacy piece is a must. And as I sit here, as I call myself a teacher interrupter, I don't claim to educate anyone. I could only hope that they open up their minds and their hearts, right, with what's put in front of them. So I seek to help them interrupt some of the things they've come to believe, some of the things that you've read. You've read. I think about um, the, a Bronx tale. I forget the main character. He says, you know, believe half of what you hear and none of what you read, right? Or it might be the other way around. Either way, uh, this idea of a critical consciousness is important to be built through historical literacy. And so the work of Khalil Gibran Muhammad, the work of Ibram Kendi, who painstakingly in their research trace us throughout history, and Ibram's case goes back 400 years, right, at the arrival of the first 20 enslaved Africans. They take their time to trace it all the way back, and Khalil Muhammad beautifully helps us trace it in contemporary times. But in a teacher education program, you get one history course. And depending on the fidelity of that professor, you may or may not engage with all of the truths. That open up the door to understand why some men are not in their homes today based on what happened 30, 40, 50, 120 years ago. I'm going to put a pin in racial literacy because I want to come back to that. We're going to spend a lot of time on that, but I want to keep you on your personal trajectory for just Mm. a minute. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're at the Metro Center. You're realizing what is happening. Now what? Mm. Where do you go from there? Mm. You know, you're so passionate. You've got so many gifts and talents in the world of literacy. Yolanda, when I think about what makes people truly literate, not just at a baseline level, can you read, write, speak, Mm -hmm. but literate at a much deeper level, critically Mm -hmm. conscious, as you like to say, a higher order of thinking Mm -hmm. and analysis skills that can be articulated well. How do you define the work for you? What is it that you would say you get up every day, commit your life to, your mission to, and go into the world and do? Wow. What an incredible question. And I'm grateful that I can answer it because what gets me up every morning, I do have a deep belief in the human spirit. I do believe 
that people can change. But folks, and when I say folks, I'm talking about teachers. That's my primary audience. I think about my education, my teacher education, ed education, my education K through 12. We do not talk about the issues that impact our lives. Issues around sexual orientation, religion, race, class, gender. We don't talk about it in a healthy way. And so when I wake up every morning and I know that I have professional development or I'm teaching or it's something that I'm seeking to write, like I'm doing a lot of writing now with my students and it cuts across all of those areas. Students who are queer, students of various class levels, race levels. That's what keeps me going to be able to offer things to folks for them to open their minds. That's what drives me. That's why, you know, I left corporate America. I was there for 13 years. I started teaching high school at night because I felt a calling to be with students, to be in a space where people were trying to learn something differently, to know the known differently. So you are in corporate America, you leave corporate America, you start working with high school students at night, correct? Mm -hmm. And take me from there to where you are. Sure. I uh, spent time in the publishing industry. So right after college, graduating from NYU, I was recruited by the New York Times and um, I began working in their circulation and their promotion. There was this constant calling for me to be with students. And so that's really when I began my high school teaching career with emancipated minors at a, what's called an overaged, undercredited school, a school that serviced those children. I felt like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I felt whole. I knew I was going to be a teacher from the age of 13. And every time I told someone that, it's, ah, why do you want to do that? Teachers don't make money. Why do you want to do that? And growing up in an economically uh, depressed area, like the South Bronx, there was the pressure to make decisions to do something where you could take care of your family. And so that's what I did. I got a job that would allow me to help my family. But what was deep within me was this desire to teach. So that was the beginning. Uh, and so I think I've, I've always been a teacher or a desire to be a teacher or to be with folks. And then I decided to go back for my master's. I went to teacher's college, got my master's at night, working at the New York Times during the daytime, still squeezing and teaching. I've always done uh, more than one thing at a time. And it has always, if I look back, it has always been the capitalist track of, you know, sort of making money because you have to live, but then the, what fed my soul. And so it was either getting a master's degree or teaching at night. And this is how I ended up, you know, where I am now. And I finally got to the point, you know, when I made the decision to go for my doctorate. So here I am a doctoral student, right? This is like my full-time thing, but I still had to be in a classroom. And I was offered a job at the College of New Rochelle. That was my first teaching job. And what's interesting is that it was teaching adults who had dropped out of high school. So I've always worked with students who have somehow not been treated well by the education system or have not fared well in the education system. So when you talk about the human spirit and trying to help people see things, A, they haven't seen before, 
to address the lens from which they see. One of my very favorite, favorite quotes is from a guy named Richard Rohr. Mm -hmm. And it's how we see is what we see. And yeah, (laughs) I mean, that struck me when I thought, wow, that's it in a nutshell, right? How we see is what we see. And so what you've been able to do around this word called literacy is develop different frameworks and different models of seeing humanity. And I've been so amazed with you as I've gotten to know you and looked at your work and watched you train and seen all the ways that you interact with audiences and and teachers and students and all those things. You know, the theories that you have established are your own. I mean, they're influenced, (laughs) but they're, but their own. And what's, I think so important for us to spend some real time on today is that you use the words critical and race and theory Mm. in ways to develop models that bring us together, models that are influenced by critical race theory, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. But to expand those models, to discuss those models, to bring in all the elements and so I want, I want us to get into a deeper conversation about that today, because I think America is so misinformed and I come at it from a media standpoint, because my background is media mm. and we founded our company on the power of media and the promise of education to be channels for people to be able to reach their highest good. Mm. And that is really our mission and has been our mission for 20 years. And honestly, there are days when I'm horrified. Yes. By what I'm seeing in media. Me too. Me too. And, you know, the power that media holds with us, the world's media can create with words and a picture that's worth a thousand words. Mm. There's so much power in that. And I do believe the anecdote to that is education Mm. um, and the promise that education delivers. So I want to talk with you about some of the literacies that you have developed, this idea of racial literacy, this idea of critical love, this criticality that you put in front of everything that you talk about. But I think we have to start with what is critical race (laughs) theory? What is CRT? (laughs) So let's get people into reality here a bit. Let's give them a short little understanding of that. And then let's move forward with what you've been able to evolve from that place, Mm. which I think resonates with a broad swath of the population. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. I want to first start by saying critical race theory, what's important for people to understand as simply as I can define it, is that it, number one, is not being taught in schools. It isn't. Critical race theory, if you will, is a lens by which scholars Folks like me who study uh, schools, it gives us a lens to help understand the inequities that are present in schools. So when people, some people are still using the language of the achievement gap. Again, Gloria Latson Billings has so generously given us the language of education debt, which is actually much more accurate when we think about the opportunities that children of color have not gotten over several hundred years. So it's really an an, an, uh, education debt that's old. Richard Milner talks about opportunity gap. But all of these terms 
help critical race theorists to understand what is happening and what is not happening in schools. The reason I use the word critical, critical love, critical humility, critical reflection, is to indicate that we must consider the things that we normally do not consider when we're talking about love, when we're talking about humility, when we're talking about reflection. And what I'm talking about is race, class, gender, sexual orientation. Items, markers that are critical to who we are, critical to understanding our experiences. So that's why I put the word in front of it, because it also gives me an opportunity to offer a different definition. Because let's say the word love. First of all, there are so many different forms of love, according to, let's say, the Greeks. But there's also forms of love for individuals. Are you talking about tough love? Are you talking about romantic love? Are you talking about platonic love? So when I say critical love, I'm being very specific that it is a love that engages the markers of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, social identity markers, as it relates to children and teachers in schools. I think we got to go one level more. Mm -hmm. It's really the markers that form our identity. So when you talk about critical love, you're really talking about the critical love that is needed for us to be healthy, whole, have a sound identity, highly productive citizens, for us to move and engage in the world in a way that's good for society. Exactly that. Exactly that. And to love others in their identities. See, that's the piece that's missing for me. So it's everything that you just said, being able to look at a child and to love them. But the critical piece for me about critical love is connected to liberation. What is different in the critical love that I am offering to the world, to the field, it's connected to liberation. It's the freeing of the teacher from the biases that they hold about those children. So their identity markers, the children that are in the classroom, their race, their class, their neighborhood. Hold on, Yolanda. We're getting some background noise, but it's so darn good because (laughs) I think it is so important and it is unique. It is conversation we do not hear because I, when you're in your flow and you're going down this road, I really want to hear what you have to say. So I'm going to keep you going. But this is why I'm excited about it because that critical love piece, I think is the liberation that we all need. Because when we think about what racism does, it impacts and infects everyone. Now, certainly some folks are on different sides of it and there's different impact, but everyone is affected. And so as a teacher, if I'm holding on to these deficit beliefs that I see in research literature, that I see in the media, constantly telling me this is what this community is, how can I really see my black and brown students in their full humanity? It's very difficult. So in that sense, I am not free to really engage with them in the way that I can, because all of these things are in my head about what they can't do, what they can't do, what they can do based on what I am seeing in the media and what I've been told. So there's a freeing that needs to happen for the teacher. And in freeing himself, herself, their self, 
they can help to free the students who are growing up in the same society and actually hearing the same deficit things about themselves and their communities. So that's why, you know, and for me, love is the answer. Love in a sense that, you know, Bell Hooks talks about the the beginning of love is truth, right? And so if teachers are open to multiple truths and not just the one that they've been taught or the few that they've been taught, that breaks open your mind. That frees you from, oh, I just think this about this group. And this is what I feel is missing. I feel that teachers, administrators do not have the opportunity to pause, to really engage in what I call the archaeology of self, to see what are the ways that they can critically love their students, how can they be more reflective, and also approach all of this with humility. So how do they do that, Yolanda? Because this is a lesson not just for teachers, this is for people, for humanity, because you know this has been an evolution for me over time, over many years, I think there's a broad swath of people out there. And I'm going to speak to the white community for just a minute. Yeah, they kind of get it. They don't want to be a racist. They want to do something good in the world. They want purpose in their lives. They want to give back, you know, all of that, all good. I don't say that tongue in cheek. I say that sincerely, of course, but it's hard. And they, and they don't necessarily want to stretch outside their comfort zone. But what you're saying and what has become my truth is that if you will step outside of your comfort zone, if you will do a little bit of this work of the archaeology of the self, if you will go there, your life opens up in so many ways. There's so much more freedom. There's so much more richness with diversity. There's so much more meaning. And so my question to you is, what is that archaeology of the self? What are the steps that you go through in plain terms, understanding that most people are not going to be PhDs or even master's level mm-hmm, and they're not even mm-hmm. in education, right? And that's uh, okay, right. Yeah, right. You know, to, to all populations, to, to everybody that's out there, mm-hmm. I think this is this is all positive stuff. I mean, there's just not anything really to fear in it. So I'm, I'm, tell us a little bit about that. Well, well, you know, let me start with what you said of nothing to fear. I think people are deathly afraid in many ways. They're afraid to give up something or believe they have to give up something. So if I really dedicate myself to this cause of equity, what am I going to lose? So this whole thing of gifted and talented in New York City, that's a hot button right now. And we know as we look over the data that there are mostly white and Asian families that have benefited from that mindfulness is important. Mindfulness as a way of pausing and not reacting, pausing, listening deeply, pausing, then speaking, pausing, then making decisions, right? So mindfulness in that sense, if we were to approach, let's say the gifted and talented issue in New York City, and I'm sure it's across the country, if white and Asian parents would see the disproportionate placement of their children versus Black and Latino children and begin to be advocates, that means that their kid might not get it. This is how they're thinking in a zero-sum game. They're not seeing the larger issue that it goes beyond our own children. It's like the children that come after us. So I think that when it comes to, let's say, doing the archaeology of self and digging deep, just like with therapy, 
there are a lot of folks that are afraid to face, wow, I really may be a racist. I really may be homophobic. And so then what do you do with it? You have, we, we all want to see ourselves as good people. And see, the thing about racism is not whether you're good, or you're bad. It's about what you've chosen to believe. And do your beliefs block other people from their full humanity? And James Baldwin actually said it best, is if what a person believes that someone else's humanity has to be diminished for your beliefs to be carried out, then you have to know as a human being that that's not right. But if that belief is so tied to who you are, how perhaps you've made a name for yourself, you've made money, you've been able to maintain your life, you are not going to be so quick to unravel that. That's where the rub comes. Okay, there we go, right? That, that's critic, That's key to this. And you can play that both ways, mm-hmm. right? You, for, for the, I'm not even going to say black and white community because it, it's just much, there's much more depth than mm-hmm. that. Many, many folks involved here. That's part of the argument. Are white people going to have to be less than for a black and brown population to move forward? Are a black and brown population going to have to be less than for a white population to move forward? That's a very sort of what I call base instinct, human low level of thinking. Explain why it doesn't have to be either or. Therein lies the problem that people see it as a zero sum game and they don't see it in the language of humanity in the full humanity for all. That is why this started 400 years ago. Systems have been built on this belief that there are some who are less human than others. And it has become part of how we believe society has to be and has to run. So in some ways, when you're asking people to do this, it's tantamount to asking them to uproot everything that they've been taught to almost change society. And many people feel that I don't have the power to do that. You're asking me to do something that is above my pay grade, right? So it's, it's that. What also complicates it are political structures. We tend to sort of lean into what does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be independent? What does it mean to be democratic? And all of that has been passed down to us as well within our families. So these are the things that we're tethered to. And that's why I say it's so deeply embedded in who we are, that it is internal as much as it is external. And it takes a special type of person to do that unraveling. And when we see in society, when people, let's say white folks, step outside and are willing to put something on the line, what happens? They're murdered, they're ostracized. And so that sends a message to other white folks, even well-meaning white folks. I'm not going to put my life on the line. I could end up dead. I mean, we, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in life and death terms because often, honestly, it comes down to that. Yes, for some teachers speaking up for social justice issues, they feel they'll lose their jobs. So that, that's a monetary thing. And that's real. For others who have done deep self-work and see that this is fundamentally a human rights issue and that I have made a decision that I am going to use the years of my life to work towards this, they realize what's at stake. They're putting, they're putting themselves on the line. Very few people have done that. And the ones that have done in history, most of them have been martyred 
or ostracized or marginalized. And, you know, Yolanda, I I really have to just (laughs) validate what you're saying, because I sat through a training with NYU, with the Metro Center. We filmed that training for three days. It was the Mm -hmm. first time I had been in a full training similar to what you do. And we couldn't roll our cameras. We had to shut down filming because teachers and principals were afraid that they would lose their jobs for honest, constructive conversation because of the school boards that they were dealing with, just for them to go in and explore and learn themselves and actually have genuine conversations and authentic conversations was something that really frightened them at a baseline security level, right? I need this job. I don't want to be caught on tape saying something in here that I'm just trying to sort of figure out and somebody reads the wrong way. And now it's got huge impact for me. We watched it across the board. Black and white, brown, whoever was in, it was it was a really, really interesting, complex problem that you are speaking directly to. So with archaeology of the self, mm-hmm. what do I do as a person that wants to be involved but's not willing to risk all that? At least not right now, because I'm not not there yet. You're not ready. And I'm going to make it personal for me that there will be times that I would do this work and this was before COVID, and go into an audience of 1,000 or 500. And there were moments that I was afraid, particularly the way that the media and the the political landscape was and, and what folks were saying, what professors should be saying and should be doing, and just a lot of hateful rhetoric around those who were trying to push forward social justice. And it is not hyperbole for me to say that I could have been putting myself on the line to be in a crowd of a thousand people, 500 people talking about racism, talking about, you know, and even when I was talking about love, some people can't hear that. So it comes a time where people have to make a decision. What kind of ancestry will you be? How important is this work to you? Why are you teaching? And what does it mean for you to teach? If it means for you to show up and do your best towards the kids in terms of academics, and that's all, then be honest about that. But if you know that social justice is required, if you know that you're teaching in a school where the children are being disproportionately suspended, placed in special education, not giving the classes that they need, that you know they will need to move forward to get into college to be productive citizens. If you know that and you are silent, I have to say, why have you chosen teaching? And so fundamentally, archaeology of the self is having those honest conversations with yourself about whatever context we're talking about. Archaeology of the self, which is a deep excavation of our beliefs, our biases, right? And it affects how we engage the work. It affects how we live our lives. But you can do an archaeology of of the self around who you are as a mother. What are your beliefs about motherhood? What are your beliefs around being a lover? What are your beliefs around being a friend? And it's having those honest conversations that also show you your phobias, your isms, and your boundaries. And we are just not honest with ourselves, particularly not around race, because look, what are the benefits? If the benefits of standing up for another human being is that you could possibly lose your job, why would anyone want to do that? That you could possibly lose your life? That's why I say 
it is love that has to be a basis. This is something what I'm talking about in some ways transcends anything that any professional development is offering, even though I do my work through professional development because the only vehicle that I have. But the love that I am asking people to cultivate is to free themselves of all that they have been taught to believe that impacts how they see another human being, and particularly human beings of color who have been written as less than human in our society and enforced by all of our systems. So a lot of times when we teach social and emotional learning or we train on social and emotional learning and that sort of thing, one of the things we talk about is when you go into an elementary school, for example, and I'd be interested if you agree or disagree with this, but when you go into an elementary school, for example, I've, I've done this in training and you have the character word of the week. Mm-hmm. And it says, be kind, be compassionate, do all these, whatever the character word is, right? Respect one another. There are posters up all over the, the walls. And the culture in the school is that the bully wins. Mm. The culture in the school is, is that the meaner I am, the more popular I am. Mm-hmm. So we have this, this tension between culture and what we're trying to teach, right? Mm. In some schools, in some school buildings. And we often say, you know, you have to help children understand the social and emotional and human payoff of doing the right thing, Mm. of being kind, of being compassionate, of being the kind of person that you just described. Life is about more than, is it safe for me? Mm. And so what my question to you is, is, is there a payoff? I think there is. a payoff for the archaeology of the self. I think there is a payoff for that work and that practice that's actually worth everything you've talked about. Hmm. But I'm curious as to how you see that and how you talk to teachers about that. Mm -hmm. And the payoff will come with what you value, right? I mean, everything you said is right on point. I can only speak for myself and for those who have taken up this work. So in, let's say, doing this work as a Black woman, I want to say that the piece on critical love, also historical literacy, mindfulness, all of those, which is why they're part of the framework, all of those components, I think, have helped me to be more compassionate, that I can actually love someone who's been scripted to be my enemy, allows me to have the patience that it requires, because I hear a lot of crazy things. And it's in part (laughs) because people, right, there's no space for them. I create a space for them to feel safe to say it, but they rarely have ever said it out loud before, believe it or not. So the archaeology of the self, where do these issues live within me? Practicing that has allowed me to free myself from a lot of internal racism So things that I know about my history, I don't believe those lies of what people say Black women are because the historical literacy shows me exactly who I am because I can just look at my ancestors. So that frees me of internalized oppression, internalized racism. The critical love piece, being willing to free myself from, I'm taught to disdain white people. White people are the oppressors doing this archaeology of the self and approaching it from humility, from love, frees me of that hate. I cannot do this work and talk about love unless I can practice that myself. Now, does that mean I get frustrated? Yes, I do. But do I ever say that I hate someone or don't like them because of they're white? 
No, my spirit can't sit with that, but that's my self-work. So what I'm saying, what are the benefits? The benefits are being, for me, a more loving person, for me, a person with more patience, with more empathy, and also I'm very firm in my purpose. And I don't have to perform to how the society tells me I should be performing. A lot of people are performing based on the way they've been scripted by society under gender, under race. It has been a liberation project for me. And to tie all of this together, this is how I'm able to write, you know, about love from the vortex and the peace chronicles. This is the self-work that I've done. So the benefit for me is the liberation of myself to be able to move in this world, knowing who I am, knowing the power that I have, the love that I'm able to offer others and understanding my purpose. Let's talk about these pillars because there's some key pillars that are mm-hmm. universal themes and values mm-hmm. that we all strive for if we're honest with ourselves. Mm. And all the performance and all the trappings and all the things that we do on a day-to-day basis, these universal values, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your spirituality is, whether you have it or not, <laughs> I mean, what, right. however you define right. who right. you are, these universal values show up in every society at some level. And you have done an incredible job of pulling this all together I feel like, in a very authentic and original way Mm. that people can dig down and think about these things because it all, at the end of the day, Yolanda, really starts not outside yourself, but inside yourself. And really, you just got to kind of sit with yourself. This is not rocket science. I mean, it is. It's a (laughs) difficult work, but it really does start with you everyone as an individual, I should say. You just said it. And also the fundamental belief do you believe in humanity? Do you believe that everyone is equal? Do you really believe that? Because that's where the rub is. And think about it. We have all been socialized and taught in schools, starting with Native Americans, that they they were less than human. They were savages. That was the language that was used. And so therefore they didn't deserve to own the land that they cultivated. So manifest destiny is what we're taught is that everyone has their God-given right to own their piece of land. But so we dehumanize and we make savages. This is our history. So this is why we have to see what is so difficult that it seems so easy. Just see the humanity in folks. As a society, we have not been taught to do that. And so that's where archaeology of self comes in to say you are willing to do the work that was not given to you as an opportunity, perhaps in your education, K-12. Maybe in your college life, you have one or two classes, but it's not really emphasized. And if you are not a religious person, you're not getting that kind of language If you're not engaging with religion, which most of the universal religions do talk about love, they talk about kindness, they talk about humanity. But even if we're going to talk about Christianity, of which I was raised as a Christian and still am, that even the language around master and slave, that's in the Bible. So it's so deeply embedded in every aspect of our lives. So to engage in racial literacy development, 
is daring to love in a different way. It is daring to be humble when perhaps you've been taught that you're superior. I think this is really, really important because I try in an attempt to sort of understand, again, words create worlds, what words and what language is going on out there that is, is being used I could say to manipulate to however you want to put it. I read an article the other day and it was like, well, what we were really doing (laughs) is bringing over these European values and education Mm -hmm. and creating a higher order of thinking and putting systems in place that were going to be the betterment of society. And so we had to sort of move through the world that way to get done what needed to be done for America to survive. I I was in shock as I'm reading this in a column and thinking to myself, wow, wow, that is exactly what you're talking about because right there, we're going to set up who's special. We're going to set up who's smart. We're going to set up who's not. We're going to set up who needs to be trained and who needs to be in the lead. It's all of those things and a paragraph. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. And can I say what also makes sense okay. is the self-work, the archaeology of self that you've been doing and the racial literacy development of where you are, because you have throughout this podcast talked about things that you've read, shared quotes that are influential to you, referenced you know, scholars. That's part of the work. That's the historical literacy. But I imagine that you would have to have tapped into some humility in order to accept or be open to what you were reading as a possible truth, right? That it required you to engage in reflection. Really? Is that what, right? Like these questions, that's archeology span of self. And a lot of times people stop at the historical literacy. The history we have is painful. And then if you're into genealogy and you draw your family back and you make connections to those who were enslavers or who helped to try to exterminate Native Americans, and that's part of your legacy, people don't want to accept that either. We actually want to make sure that we always are looking good and sounding good and feeling good. That is what we've created in our society. You have to not only tap into the humility, you have to tap into it a little bit through suffering. Mm. You have to remember what it feels like not to belong. You have to remember what it feels like to suffer. And you have to be willing to experience a little bit of that. So when you go back to the previous part where you said, why do I want to do this? It doesn't feel good. If you can't remember your own pain and acknowledge the the suffering that all of humanity shares you can't get there Mm -mm. and so to run from that doesn't allow you to actually do the work i couldn't have said it better and the closest we've been to collective trauma perhaps has been this pandemic where everyone regardless of creed gender race sexual orientation was glued to the television to find out the numbers and who had, and, and the deaths of people we didn't know impacted us so deeply. I remember mourning for people that I didn't know in another state, in another country. That's just the tip of the iceberg. 
if we can allow ourselves, like you said, that kind of mourning and suffering for those who have been hurt, who have been violated, and in some ways place ourselves in that, and we know how horrible that feels, then perhaps we will say, I would do whatever I can to stop this from happening to another human being. But we haven't been written that way as humans. We've been written as races, and races have been uh, put in a hierarchy. And that's how we socialize our children. That's what we've been trying to unravel. For me, love is the only way. What else is there? What else is the most powerful force that can make you do things you would have never thought of? For me, it's love. And that critical piece is what you're talking about. When it love as it relates to race, love as it relates to sexual orientation of yourself and someone else, love as it relates to all of these identity markers in a society where identity has made some less and some more. And I know when I was a first talking about the self-love piece and you said, yes, and love of the other, but you said something a moment ago that I found profound and I want to expand on it is you said, as a black woman, archaeology of self has helped me get rid of or excavate Mm -hmm. some of my own internal racism. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean racism outwardly. I think what also happens for all of us is that when we don't love freely, we don't feel good internally. Mm. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wow. But it's because love is the great motivator, right? So there are things happening within us that are destructive to us. How can we love someone else? Right, right. It's the old adage, love yourself before you love someone else. Again, all of these things, these... Uh, what do you call them? euphemisms? They, they sound very easy and they are, but what complicates it is our history. What complicates it are the consequences that are put in place of loving someone, of putting something on the line. That's that gap in between. So it's okay, human A, human B, and all of the stuff in between that blocks human A from seeing human B and their full humanity because all of these other things have been clouding it. Race, you're this race, you grew up in that neighborhood. You're from that zip code. By the time you get through all of those filters, you don't see the person in their full humanity. And I I think Yolanda, what I think is so critical, because I think for me, I did not, it wasn't so much that I didn't understand it, but that I, I never thought about it. If Mm -hmm. I'm honest, Mm -hmm. I never thought about what racism does to somebody internally. What does that do to a nine-year-old girl? Mm. What does it do to a 12-year-old boy? And I'm just talking about racism in society. Maybe Mm -hmm. you've never personally you know, can, can put your finger on it. Not to only, not to mention that kids don't have the language to even know how to talk about what's happening Mm -hmm. to them. Right. It's just happening at a very deep level. Mm. I want you to talk a little bit about that because I don't think we can get out of this without 
saying that. It is deep. It is complex. It is so deep and it is so complex. And I thank you for what you just said, because what comes to mind is the doll test from Kenneth and Mamie Clark, but also replicated on a wide scale a few years ago by Margaret Bill Spencer. So the beautiful thing about scholarship and researchers is that those who have their pulse on society, it's important that we do study these things because we understand the psychological impact. So that's why it's important. So again, that lens of critical race theory of understanding society. But all one has to do is to look at how five and six-year-olds prefer a white doll over a black doll, let's just say in the doll study, and then to begin to ask them questions about why they prefer that. That has come from a deep socialization in society that we all have experienced. And so when you share that you've never really thought about it, if it impacted you on a personal level from a child, it becomes part of who you are. And that's the fundamental difference. If I can use the binary for a moment of, let's say, a, a person of color and a white person, that the society from its inception has been built and designed with you being the center, you being most human, you being deserving of all of this. And so racism has not impacted you. Now, there are other things, sexism, all of that. But when we talk fundamentally about race, it is difficult for, let's say, a white person to really understand the impact of that because that's not how they've been written in society. They have not had to come up against that. It's usually about class. And so you'll find most white people are willing to talk about growing up in poverty and using that as perhaps a, a barometer to understanding racism, but it is not the same. Mm. There are different affects and effects from that. And here's the thing I think that is different. And you can go at this from so many different angles, depending on who you are. And so I think it's okay for white people to say, I'm not going to ever get this. Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced it. I mean, Patrick Jean-Pierre is one of my favorite people said to me, <laughs> it's connected me now, used to be at NYU. One of my favorite people too. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, Stacy, he said, you know, white people just can't drive the bus on this. Mm. You know, they can, they can support, they can be involved. They can come at it from a way that's helpful and powerful, but they can't drive the bus. You know, they can't be in the mm. front seat of the car. You know, it's not enough to have one black person in Congress. You know, we got to have representation. I mean, we, you and I could have big conversations about this, but here's the thing that I think white people can get to. And that is when I said, we all feel bad from this. And if you're honest with yourself, the reason you don't want somebody to blame and shame and you don't want to look at the history of what's happened in America is because that feels bad. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be that person who is contributing to humanity in that way. Mm -hmm. You don't want to, when you realize what that does to someone, you can finally say, well, you know, I don't want to do that. And what's it going to take to make me try not to do that? So that's a different way, depending on who's in the audience, to start to begin to look at this. And I think that's why it's so important for us to understand the complexity of what has happened and what 
really does drive deep. And what are the lenses and the things in your own life that you can look at and remember and that you've suffered through that has been your most difficult suffering? And how can you try to parallel that and sort of start to understand that in a way that you can reach across and that you can connect with people that are different from you? Because we do have different experiences. They're not going to be the same. Yes. And everything that you said, there's so many things that come to mind. That is definitely a starting point. And when you're open to that, go even deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you think that hurts or doesn't feel great, think about the deep inhumanity of enslavement. And that there is no way, and this is not about you know, because people talk about the Holocaust and who's oppressed more, mm-hmm. any kind of deep inhumanity where imagine your child, you just gave birth and your child is being taken away from you out of your arms to be sold. That your husband that you love because of a system is being taken away from you. One morning, you, you, one night you go to bed with him, the next morning he's sold away and you have no control. I don't think that this, and this is what blocks this nation from having true empathy, because I don't think folks can really, really understand the pain of that. And when we begin to say, oh my gosh, I've been loving this husband for 20 years, 30 years, if he just is taken away from me, or if my child is just taken away from me, how do I live that? How do I even deal with that? Maybe. Just maybe if people can go there mentally, and I don't know if this means people need to have virtual simulations. I don't know. I don't know if it's possible. But what I do know is that if we let the ego get out of the way, because it's really the ego that blocks, oh, that's too painful. I can't go there. See, ultimately it is, where is your heart for humanity? For me, it's, it's, I'm, I'm making it sound very simple. And if it is to try to be truly empathetic so that you can help make change, which is what it's going to require, the ego has to be out of the way. And Yolanda, I think it's where is your heart for humanity? And is it important enough that you're willing to take a risk for that? Can I say that we could talk about this for three, four, five, six hours? And listen, scholars have studied this, psychologists, philosophers. The bottom line is it comes down to the individual. If the individual is willing to find the courage and have the moral stamina and then bring others along. Because look, here's the thing. We've been at the 400 years ago. It's going to take at least another 250 years And that means it requires all of us. And if we settle that, oh, it's just a political difference, that right there is going to take out a segment of society. If we say, oh, you don't understand because you're a woman or you're a man. So we have all of these divisions that block us from our full humanity. And for me, at the end of the day, it is about that. So I I need to wrap up because I'm watching your time as much, but I want to talk about a couple other things. First of all, archaeology of the self. Give me the pillars. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about where I can find it. Mm -hmm. What you've written, 
what your workshops are that are available for educators mm. that are here, that are listening, um, mm. corporate people that might be listening, whoever's mm-hmm. listening. What are the pillars? Because I think I think they're so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just run through those real quickly, and then then refer us to some things that we can go deeper. Sure. With. And thank you for mentioning mentioning corporations. I've been doing work with corporations as well. Archaeology of the self. Let's just say none of this work can be done without the self. That's what we've been spending this whole time talking. Unless you are like willing to do this deep work about what you really believe and what you're willing to give up, facing your fears. So the self is central and you cannot get to critical love, which is basically having a profound and ethical commitment for the communities that you're serving, whether it be your clients or your students. You can't get at critical love without archaeology of the self. You cannot get at critical humility. Critical humility is recognizing no matter how long you've been doing something, that there's still things you do not know. And that you have to be open to the stories, the understandings, the knowledges of other people. You cannot get at that unless you do self-work. You cannot get at critical reflection without doing the self-work of archaeology of the self, because critical reflection asks that you do what? To know your stance and to listen deeply to someone else's stance and then reflect on it and then possibly get to the point of what I'm calling reflexivity, which is to take action to kind of turn around and change your behaviors without being in contact with the self. You cannot alter your behavior. You cannot alter your thinking. Without historical literacy, these are the components, by the way, of the racial literacy development model. Without knowing deep history, which we know in this country, we do not teach. Do people know that hand sanitizer was created by a Latino? Is that important in a racialized society where Latinos are not treated well? Yeah, maybe if people understood that BIPOC people created some of their everyday usage Like, for example, Henry T. Sampson, a black man, created the cell phone. If we understood how people of color, I'm talking about my white folks here, that what was created by BIPOC people helps you in your everyday life, you may see the quote unquote value of those people in a different way. So without archaeology of the self, doing a deep excavation about and having humility about what you don't know, you are not going to seek historical literacy. And it is historical literacy that has the power to open up your knowledge about people of color that can help break the deficit mold that can then allow you to love them. You see all of the connections? And then of course, the ultimate step in all of this that I hope for, whether you call it racial literacy development framework, whether you call it raising your social consciousness, is to interrupt that when you see and you hear something that works against the humanity of a person, of a group, based on their social markers, you will interrupt. And that interruption is going to look different based on the person, based on the context, based on what is being done, what is being said. And so for me, when we mentioned a little bit about Congress, you know, we don't have, I don't think, enough socially conscious, critically loving Congress people who are willing to interrupt some of these policies that still allow our schools to run in the way that they do. 
And a teacher has to interrupt in a classroom, but a teacher has to recognize it first. We have to interrupt in our home, in our right. homes, actually. How about we mm-hmm. start with that, with the racist jokes and the sexist jokes and the homophobic, the anti-Semitic, the anti-Black jokes that are made at the dinner table? Ha, ha, ha. That's the first point. And this is part of why we keep seeing this, because children are growing up in homes and they're hearing things that are not interrupted. And so when they come to school and a teacher may attempt to interrupt it, the family are as an arm is that, no, you can't tell my child what to think. I mean, it is so deeply complex, but it is always the adults. I'm going to put it on us. It is always the adults that are maintaining the status quo because children are pure. And children are open. All you have to do is watch two and three-year-olds on the playground. They will hug each other, kiss each other, dance together. We teach them that they must be different. Children are pure. So back to the self. What are we saying in our homes? What are we doing in our homes? When are we choosing to be silent in the face of inhumanity? That's the self-work we have to do to try to interrupt it. And slow and steady wins the race. Chandler's favorite quote, by the way. Slow and steady wins the race. Yes. It is so true. <laughs> it is so true. You know, At 13, she said to me, Mom, slow and steady wins the race. That's why she is something. a soulmate of yours. <laughs> She's totally my soulmate and brilliant. But it is true. And, and we have, as Black people, as people of color, we know that because, you know, have things changed? Absolutely not without fight, not without bloodshed of co-conspirators as well as allies. Do we have a far way to go? Yes, absolutely. But slow and steady wins the race. But people are feeling more urgent now than ever before. I got to ask you two more questions, actually three, and then we'll be done. I'll try to do it quick. Number one, I personally believe that this will play out on the platform of schools. That schools are possibly the only place and platform available in the country to actually have huge impact on social justice issues. Do you agree? I do agree. Uh, It is the one space, again, where all children are responsible for going. And if they're not, like, let's say if there's truancy, then there are, you know, repercussions that adults have to explain. Why is your child not in school? So that is a place, a beautiful place that we can, you know, harness the human spirit and begin to teach the true history. You know what? We don't give children enough credit. We think that if we teach them the true history that is going to do something to them, why don't we try it and let them figure out how to negotiate this? Because this is their world and their world deserves to be better than the world that we have. Again, it's the adults, the adults that are making the test, the adults that are maintaining the status quo, the adults that are afraid of losing their jobs, the adults that are threatening people that they'll take their jobs away. It's not the children. So if we can figure out the adults in the schools to allow children to engage with true history and feelings and emotions, we might be onto something. Given that schools are the place, given that children come to that school to be shaped, formed, socialized beyond their families, that's what school does. It's not that their families aren't shaping them and Mm-mm. forming them and socializing them, but school is the other vehicle for that or the broader 
vehicle for that, or as Deborah Lamb likes to say it from New York City Department of Education yeah. for exposure. Yes. For the exposure that students need, children need beyond just their families to live in a diverse society. How incredibly dangerous is it, Yolanda? Mm. What is going on in this country right now? That question just takes my breath away. With freedom of speech and the freedom to discuss identity issues. Mm -hmm. You know, so much comes to mind when you say freedom of speech. My own historical literacy lets me understand the limitations of all of those early documents because people like me were not even considered human at that time. So So critical that you point that out. I think that's so critical that you point that we throw around freedom of speech like it's some, you know, infallible. um, And men wrote that. Yeah, right. And everybody sort of forgets who was hanging around in the country at that time that wasn't included (laughs) in those great systems anyway go yes. ahead no, and, yes and and who and and who has it been serving all of this time so you know what's dangerous now as we talk about freedom of speech i particularly think about what's happening in libraries school libraries and how literally there's caution tape that's preventing children from these you know there's over 26 states north dakota just passed a law last week that you cannot talk about Racism is some a very specific term related to racism in schools. And these other states, 25 others, have bills pending. But what's happening in certain states in school libraries is that caution tape is being put across categories or, or sections in their library where there are books written by scholars of color, books on the Holocaust, books on enslavement, uh, books on Japanese internment, Anything that makes America show its, I guess, true colors, because these are things that happened. Japanese, the Japanese internment, it happened. Enslavement happened. Native American manifest destiny, trying to ameliorate Native Americans, it happened. So it scares me, you talk about freedom of speech, of saying, no, you cannot read these books. You cannot talk about it. We have to ask ourselves from a basic human level, why do certain folks not want people to know this? What are they afraid of? The teachers that I work with all over the country, they are sharing their fears and they stop talking about it. So it's, you know, it's having the effect, whoever is behind the movement. And in this you know, education has always been political and any administration has always come in and education has been a political football, whether it's No Child Left Behind, the ESEA Act, uh, Race to the Top. It's always promises that are made, policies that will be passed. And here we are still 66 plus years after Brown versus Board of Education, and we still haven't gotten it right. So I have to wonder, I'm skeptical about when politicians talk about these kinds of policies, who's it serving exactly? Where's the money going exactly? And with so much dedication, each administration, why have things in some ways gotten worse and not better? Do you think it's more dangerous right now than it has been? I'm not saying it in forever, obviously. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. I'm not saying since 400 years ago, but I'm Mm -hmm. saying in recent times. 
Yeah, well, you know, as a student of 1960s, 1950s education, and also teaching for 30 years now, I think the advent of standardized tests, high stakes testing, this new layer of not talking about race, racism, history, and the widening of the access gap in education makes it more pernicious. There are multiple things that are in place that are really having a stronghold on certain students. I'm talking about in mass, you not having that opportunity to climb the ladder. Last thing before I get into a little bit of talking about where we can find you and that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. Yeah, you see, I is... kept that to the side because <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I want to get um, the last thing. I'm a teacher. Let's say I'm a teacher. I'll tease the documentary a minute, but we have a segment of the documentary is you in training. And there's a woman in training who's a teacher. And she said, you know, she's emotional. And Patrick is talking about how emotional the work is. My gosh. And she says, you know, it's a lot. It is a lot. That's all I'm going to say, she says, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot. And there are so many teachers we're talking to out there right now, not just teachers, administrators, principals. I was on the phone with a principal the other day who's trying to navigate some things that are going on in a little tiny community and they're exhausted. And you know this, Yolanda, better than anyone. Mm -hmm. They're exhausted and they're frustrated and they think, I'm just going to retire. I can't take this anymore. I've had several administrators and several principals and teachers saying these last year and a half, two years have been the most difficult of my career. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? How can you help them? How can you encourage them? I think they need to think about, again, I'm going into the self-work, no surprise, what motivated them to do this in the first place? And did they think it was going to be easy? I I have to think of the words of James Baldwin, Jimmy Ball, Uncle Jimmy in 1963 in a talk to teachers where he said, anytime you're going to advocate, in that case, he was talking about Negro children. Anytime you're going to advocate for Negro children, those who are less than, you have to expect fierce resistance. Sorry for the sirens. This is New York after all. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, right. (laughs) So uh, when I think about those teachers, I think about those administrators that says this is just too hard. And yes, it has been hard, particularly these last two years with COVID-19. And I think what's also been hard is that racism has exploded. The murder of George Floyd, the murder of Breonna Taylor, uh, the scaling of the White House wall, like it's almost like all gloves are off. And we've been seeing such deep inhumanity and anger and violence. And that weighs on all of us, and particularly in schools, because the children come and maybe they don't have the language, but things are happening at home of parents and guardians that are engaging with what happens in the world. So they're talking about it. The children are listening to it. They're coming to school. The adults are stressed out. And there they are. So yes, it has been difficult, but teaching is no easy road. And and I sometimes wonder for those who signed up even 15, 20 years ago, they just may be tired too. We get tired of our work. 
But why did you, did you think it was going to be easy? That's my question. Because any, and particularly if you're teaching in uh, schools where there are BIPOC children as the majority, knowing that we are living in the society that we're living in, you've got to know it's going to be hard. So but the question for me always is, why did you choose to teach here? Did you just land up here? Is this really where you want to be? And so if it is, then you know it is going to take that extra, that extra piece of energy when you feel like quitting that you keep pushing. So again, it is archaeology of the self. It is being honest. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe it's time to retire. But if it's because you're being asked to do social emotional learning, you're being asked to do culturally responsive teaching, you're being asked for your school to engage in racial literacy, and that feels too exhausting, then you know why are you teaching the children or administrating over the children that you, you are? And just to have like honest conversations with yourself. Where can we find you? Your training, if, if somebody is interested in you coming and talking with their group, um, Let's talk about a few of the books that you've written that we can sure. um, actually get our hands on, purchase. Sure. And before I say that, I want to say this last thing. In some ways, what's happening in schools, although individuals, teachers, administrators have to be culpable, it is also unfair because the weight of what this society has created plays out in schools. And oftentimes, Yes, there are teachers that they know their hearts are not right and administrators. We know that there's no way it's not possible. Right. But the onus being on schools and we recognize that that's where it can make or break this society. It is also unfair. Because all of the ills of society play out in schools. I could not agree with you more. And that's the whole point of defining us. The whole point is, I mean, not the whole point, obviously, but that, but this is happening on the front lines of school systems. School systems are on the front lines of change. They're the one institution in society that is on the front lines of change because they have to be on the front lines of change because they are charged with caring for these young children. And we see that, you know, and how that plays out in terms of how we solve social justice issues. I just think it's so critical that educators are actually in the national dialogue. And I don't mean one or two of them. I mean a wide swath of educators that are in the national dialogue that say, we're dealing with this on a daily basis. You, dear politician or whoever, is not. I mean, it's often what I say, Yolanda, to people, they'll come up to me and say something and I'll say, after you've spent three weeks in a classroom, then come talk to me. <laughs> come talk to me. But until then, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, right? and that actually is an opportunity for our teacher education programs because that is the common denominator that most teachers, yes, there are even alternative programs. Teachers have to go through some form of education to prepare them. So if our teacher education programs are not preparing teachers, we've got to look at them as well. Folks have to begin to share the responsibility in education. And I want to point to teacher education programs. They need to do a better job. I just, I could talk to you all day. So I really want you to now tell us a little bit about where we can find you, because I think you have so much to offer. And what I want to say to the listeners is 
that when working with you, you really are getting unique information. I mean, again, as a media person, there's so much that rotates in a media cycle. There's so many ways that people are talking about different things, but they're really saying the same thing. And what that does to us as a society, I believe, is it allows us to not go deep. It keeps us shallow. And so you really, if you're going to do training, if you're going to really dig down, you've got to have people that are speaking to you, educating you, training you with you, you working with you that are going to push you to the edge to allow you to go deeper. And I think Yolanda, that's a great strength that you bring. Mm, So both in the books that you're writing, but also in the workshops. And I think that I want to make sure people know how to get in touch with you if they want to do that. Thank you so much for saying that the best way, the fastest way is to reach out to me through my website, YolandaSealyRuiz.com. And on the website is an invitation for you to share your email, your telephone number for me to uh, be in contact with you. So absolutely. You can also Google me. I can be found through my institution's email, Teachers College, Columbia University. I'm also very active, as you know, on social media, particularly Twitter at Ruiz Sealy, and also on Instagram at Yoli underscore Sealy Ruiz. And of course, Facebook for some of the older folks like me, we're still on Facebook under, you know, I'm on Facebook under Yolanda Sealy Ruiz. And I say all of that because there's no bifurcation for me that who I am in my professional life is who I am in my personal life and my social media, my website reflects all of that. So you'll see things about social justice. You'll see things about racial literacy as well as poetry, because I bring all of me all the time, everywhere I go, even to my social media. Full integration. Full integration. Thank you for that. That's right. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It has been such a pleasure for you to be here today. I am just thrilled and thank you so very much. You can also see Dr. Yolanda Seeley Ruiz in Defining Us, which is the upcoming documentary that is now complete. I think that it really speaks to all the issues, not in the depth that we covered here today. That's the beauty of a podcast, but the work that educators are doing in school systems and the work that they're doing now outside of school systems to lead this country in the right direction. And I really, really believe that you're at the forefront of that work, Yolanda. So great to have you here today. A true pleasure. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank and you. I'm great sure to we'll, be here. I'm sure we'll talk soon. 